0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today?
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I'm here. We're going to uh, have Christmas in a few weeks. I'm really excited about that.
0: Christmas in a few weeks. It'll be different, man. COVID Christmas is going to hit a lot differently. I don't know if you're doing anything, but uh, this will be the first Christmas since my mission that I don't go home.
1: Yeah, that might be true for me too.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully everybody out there is going to be able to enjoy the holiday somehow, regardless of whether or not you are able to be with your loved ones. I hope you are still able to enjoy the holiday season in spite of COVID. Let's go ahead and jump into what we want to talk about today. We have a pretty full docket for today. I think the first thing we're going to want to talk about is this Elder Whiting devotional. I didn't see a whole lot of buzz about it, but the buzz that I did see was significant in terms of what... Elder Whiting chose to dedicate his time to. Derek, did you get a chance to uh, watch any or part of this talk?
1: I did. I read some of the, the summaries that I saw online, and then I watched part of the video. I didn't watch the whole video, but mm-hmm. I watched the part that seemed to be most prominent in the buzz. Since I suppose you are the most directly affected
0: by it, I just wanted to see what your feelings about the talk generally were or about any particular parts of the talk were.
1: Well... The first thing is, he didn't actually mention LGBT folks specifically, but I think anyone who's part of the context knows that that's what we're talking about. It's dog whistling. Yes, it definitely is that, because I can't think of any other issues that what he said would be relevant to. And Mm -hmm. let's talk about what he said. Yeah. He said, first of all, he mentioned the two great commandments. Mm -hmm. The first one, love God, and the second, love your neighbor. And then he scolded people in the audience and told them not to invert the two laws and put love for neighbor ahead of love for God. Hmm. And this is what he said. Quote, some in their efforts to love others feel it is necessary to abandon the teachings and commandments of God or to advocate for a change of his doctrine. But to love God is to accept his teachings, commandments, and doctrine." hmm what, what did you think when you first heard of this?
0: Man, all I could do was shake my head at the not-so-subtle homophobia by yet another leader of the church. You know, it wasn't anything new, just another maggot on the pile of BS that is the church's homophobia. I know I'm not directly affected by this, but as an ally, I, ha- I have to take every one of these talks seriously as a threat to gay humanity. And this was just a poor transmogrification of god's law to ironically deny gay people god's love i've said it on the show before that these are the kinds of people that legitimately upset christ those that weaponize his words against people's humanity and unfortunately that is the kind of company elder whiting just put himself in
1: yeah and i watched part of the video and it's really interesting because it seemed very dull and lifeless when he was saying it 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 looked like it was deteriorating his own soul and he was just so uncomfortable and lifeless at least that's how i perceived it as he said those words so i really feel sorry for him not me but for him because he's having to do these contortions within whatever constraints he feels like he has to work in order to say these things that end up hurting people and that's i think the really the manipulative part is because he's trying to diffuse people's instinct to love their neighbor, Mm -hmm. and and trying to trump that with an alleged love for God that ends up hurting your neighbor. And I think that can be used in a very abusive way. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me talk about something he forgot. He forgot that queer saints know the scriptures, and we're going to go through some scriptures. Hoorah. So the first thing is, in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3, we have Paul saying something very interesting it seems like elder whiting is presupposing that all you have to do is or the most important thing to do is get the doctrine right know what god said and know what the commandments are and then you're all set but paul says very clearly that getting the doctrine right isn't good enough you can have tongues prophecy knowledge and faith but if you don't have love for one another you don't get any credit for those things Mm -hmm. that you got right Mm -hmm. it's not like oh there's a balance and you know it outweighs nope if you have all those things but don't have love, you're nothing, that's Mm. what Paul says. And here's the other thing is that he's got this funny thing that doesn't even come from the scriptures, this idea that there's a conflict between the two. I'm not aware of any author in the scriptures that really makes a big deal about this conflict. I think he's bringing in some type of legal and judicial balancing thing here that's not in our sources.
0: Didn't Paul also say that these commandments are basically one and the same anyway?
1: Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, love for God and love for neighbor are completely intertwined. Mm-hmm. Paul in Romans 13 says that the entirety of the law can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. But, and I can't even think of one of these great commandments without the other. They just don't make sense in isolation or in competition. And let me give you some scriptures. This is from First John 4 verse 20 if a man say i love god and hateth his brother he is a liar for he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen how can he love god whom he hath not seen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so elder whiting claims that we should first love god whom we have not seen and then love our neighbor afterward but elder whiting fails by separating them if you don't love your lgbt neighbor who is in right in front of you you don't love god mm-hmm. the god who created lgbt folks in god's image mm-hmm. and here's another one and behold i tell you these things that ye may learn wisdom from mosiah two seventeen, that ye may learn that when ye are in the service of your fellow beings ye are only in the service of your god now I'm I'm sure that Elder Whiting has heard this, but he has not internalized it the way someone who's not a straight white male would. Mm. He like I don't think he's applied this. This King Benjamin was literally saying, if you are serving your neighbor and loving your neighbor, that counts as nothing other than serving and loving God. Mm-hmm. And here's another one from the sheep and goats judgment jesus says in matthew twenty five forty, 40 verily i say unto you inasmuch as as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren ye have done it unto me so i have three really great texts that and i'm not even quoting these out of context or anything like if you look at the consistent witness of the scriptures love for neighbor counts as love for god mm-hmm. if you truly understand both there's no conflict and, the, and it's not appropriate to like diffuse or dismantle people's instinct to love their neighbor, which comes from the spirit, and then say, well, God wants us to hurt people, so we've gotta follow God instead. hmm And let's talk about Jesus, right? I think there's some Jesus missing in his talk, or at least in this part of his talk. Jesus got accused of inverting love for God and neighbor all the time. So if Elder Whiting is accusing me of inverting these two, I'm in good company with Jesus. I'd rather be sitting with Jesus than not. Let me give you a good example. I only have time for one good example. It's in John chapter 8. It's the story of the woman taken in adultery. Mm-hmm. What happened was Jesus' enemies confronted him with the law, with the commandment, and they even quoted it. They said, what should we do? The law says we should stone her, which is true. Mm -hmm. That is one of God's commandments. It says very clearly. There's no way around it. But he was able to contrive a way to get all of the witnesses and accusers to leave, saving her life. Notice I'm not saying that adultery is okay or that Jesus was lax on adultery. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing is saving the life of someone. And that trumped their their obligation to follow this commandment to stone her Mm -hmm. right and i think that is so beautiful because if you notice jesus says well jesus of course does say go and sin no more but he says that when everyone has left the text is very clear that everyone else had gone away it says he was speaking to her alone and that's when he gives her the medicine he doesn't chastise her even in the least in front of anyone so that's why I'm saying Jesus was okay with the public perception that he was lax on these things. He, he wasn't because that's in private. He directed her and said what was real. But I, th- I think we should never be afraid of what it looks like when we love our neighbor and when we work to save them. Absolutely. And so that's back. just one example, I don't have time for other examples, just one quote. This, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. If you look at the, the narrative of all of the gospels, you see many times that Jesus is literally, literally trying to defend himself from people who are claiming that he's loving his neighbor too much and ignoring his love for god that's behind all this love for the sinners and tax collectors and all these other things there's another flaw in that he talks about oh you're you're a bad person if you don't support god all of god's commandments but the funny thing is none of us do that well, who has enumerated all of God's commandments? I don't think he has. And mm-hmm. i that's why I'm doing my project mm-hmm. is like, what is, a, what is a commandment? What applies to us? And so that's, that's a ta- talk for another time.
0: I also want to just briefly say that, uh, you know, we often use this term cafeteria Mormon as a pejorative to people who are kind of falling in this camp of selective obedience to commandments. But that is literally every member of the church. We're all cafeteria Mormons. All of us pick and choose what commandments we want to like obey. Like the one about
1: wearing the mask?
0: Like the one about wearing the mask.
1: <laughs> right. Or like... Something Black Lives simple. Matter.
0: Black Lives Matter, yeah. Like, don't be racist is not on the temple recommend interview questions. Well, I think it should be. Exactly. It should be. Because
1: like, that hurts more people than like I would, somebody like absolutely. word of wisdom. Like, 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 I'd much rather
0: be in the temple with somebody who's struggling with porn than somebody who doesn't view me as fully human. I, I say all that to say... That none of us are 100% committed to everything the church or the scriptures teach because none of us are perfect. And further, the standards aren't even the same for all of us. To, to, To demand complete fidelity to the brethren in absolution and devoid of context when it comes to gay people while not doing the same for the sins straight people are actually tempted to commit is mad hypocritical and unfair. The law of chastity as outlined in the scriptures, for example, is simply no sex outside of marriage. But somehow, for gay people, that means no sex ever, no marriage
1: ever, no physical affection of any kind ever, and just be alone forever. It's ridiculous. You can see how people are telling on themselves when they say things like, oh, well, we all have trials, or oh, well, Ooh. we all sin. Ooh, don't get me started, bro. Because they haven't even thought about that for half a second. Look, yes, queer folk are sinners mm-hmm. for other reasons, right? And and the straight folks are sinners. But we're all sinners, but we don't all have the opportunity to be sealed in the temple. We're all mm-hmm. sinners, but we don't all mm-hmm. have the same opportunity Bingo. to live as the gender we know our, we ourselves to be. Like, Bingo. so the we're all sinners piece has nothing to do with the structural discrimination that is being inflicted upon my people in a very gross double standard. Whereas, you know, straight people are still sinners and fully participate in the life of the church in a way that's denied to my people mm-hmm. for a completely artificial and arbitrary reason. Mm-hmm.
0: There's no sin by virtue of commission right. that that disqualifies you from love.
1: And then same thing with the, with the, well, everyone has trials, but that doesn't justify artificially adding a trial to everyone that fits into a certain category that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, life is hard enough, and let me tell you if you take away this quote-unquote trial on the gay people like because their logic is well everyone needs trials we've all got the same trials as everyone else and then we've got one more Mm -hmm. or multiple more right and so their logic doesn't actually work but let's talk about those commandments because he talks about the commandments like they're fixed like oh you've got to bow down and worship the commandments of god but you know the commandments can change even within the same dispensation commandments can change and probably a good example of this is during jesus ministry he did not open things up to gentiles he did not remove the the requirement for circumcision he didn't do any of these things and within the same dispensation paul came along later and did something that was relatively unprecedented now jesus did have some some steps towards the inclusion of gentiles but historically he did not inaugurate the full inclusion of gentiles or else there wouldn't have been a controversy later in the christian church Mm -hmm. so we know historically that jesus didn't actually fully open up the movement to gentiles and of course the the gospels that we have were written a generation or two after jesus during a time where the christian church was already pro gentile so that's what they were reading back into jesus so my point is we had a major people say well that was done under the old covenant. Now this is different. No, in the same dispensation, the commandments can change. Yeah. Same with polygamy. Now we have a commandment about polygamy.
0: Priesthood and temple right? restrictions. You know,
1: there's things can change even within the same dispensation. So it is not at all inappropriate for us to say, "Hey, maybe we need to take another look and ask God about what we think and perceive these commandments to be." hmm And that's born out of love for neighbor, right? And here's what I want to ask you. A lot of people want to focus on how the queer people suffer from stuff. But what I want to ask is how the homophobes benefit. So how do you think Elder Whiting benefits? What incentive does he have to say the things he did? He didn't have to say that.
0: No, he didn't. I think he gains the same thing that uh, I find it interesting that you highlighted Uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13 when just before in chapter 12 and we'll get to this conversation a little bit later when we talk about spiritual gifts look at what was happening in that particular time to all the various kinds of people in Corinth there was people saying oh I'm of Apollos I'm of Cephas I'm of Christ I'm of Paul or such and such like all these people were trying to align themselves with certain people or certain spiritual gifts to in essence Say to themselves, I am spiritually elite in a way that you are not. This is what I think a lot of people who come down on gay identity are trying to do. They're not trying to, they're they're trying to put another people down to basically make themselves feel better. Like we know as straight people that to some extent, we have to know to some extent that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense that these policies affecting the gay members of our community don't make a whole lot of sense. So we have to remind ourselves that we are in the right by telling those folks, the members of the LGBTQ folks, that they are less than or that there is something wrong with them in their authentic expression of identity. This is how straight people remain in power. This is how any privileged group remains in power. They have to remind folks that are not in power that they are not in power. They have to remind them that there's something wrong with them. They have to remind them that that is their place, that their place is not equal to mine. This is what I think Elder Whiting and all the other folks that say anything about these issues have to gain. They have to gain a sense of self-importance, a sense of self-righteousness, because without naming it, without putting it out there, it doesn't exist. And then they have to wrestle with their own internalized homophobia that tells them there is
1: something wrong with who they are as people. And I think that's partly why they do the dog whistles, because they know if they mentioned the LGBTs directly, they would have a lot of problems. Oh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And so he can claim, he can have this deniability of like, mwah, mwah, mwah. but when you look at what he's doing, it's it's very clear. And I think he has got a lot of things, not just a s- self-importance, but I think he gets a social boost from saying these things among certain populations, mm-hmm. right? The leaders love him because... Of, uh, like, oh, he's standing for things and he's, you know, taking a stand against the world and he's supporting the brethren. And I think he gets a step up in the hierarchy and he benefits from that. And here's another benefit that I think people haven't fully analyzed. And I don't really know his life at all, but I imagine after a long career as a church leader, he's made mistakes with people. Uh, pastoral mistakes, administrative mistakes, other mistakes, where he has prioritized what he thought love of God was over the love for neighbor. And he's probably hurt a lot of people along the way. And if he were to realize what he had has done, it would feel awful. He would have so much cognitive dissonance, he couldn't even handle it. So he has to maintain this artificial contrast between the first two you know between the two great commandments because if he doesn't consistently tell himself that i've got to love god over my neighbor he would have to deal with like whoa i messed up and i hurt these people for no reason mm-hmm. at least he now can say well i had a reason for for denying this recommend or denying this financial assistance or i had a, a reason for not giving this call like Now he doesn't have any good reasons for that. All of the mistakes he's ever made, hurting people in the name of God, he won't be able to make if he had the same understanding that I do.
0: If you're always drunk, then you never get hungover.
1: This gets also back to this idea that I've had a number of times, but that all homophobia is autobiography. So what he's really trying to do is propping up something in his own life that if the rug came out, like, I really don't think a, a num- some people actually hate homos and really want to hurt us and actually hurt. A lot of it is just a byproduct of something else. And that's really where it gets into is they are assuming that's exactly, they tell on themselves when they say, oh, it's like an addiction or oh, it's like whatever, because what that's telling you is they don't understand the queer piece nope. but they understand something in their life or in the life of a loved one maybe they had a loved one who overcame an addiction and it was great for them and like oh well maybe i'll work for the queers too they're improperly mapping what works for them or a loved one onto someone else and that's mm-hmm. why the homophobia is autobiography there is something about their life that is intrinsically tied to a separate policy that hurts queer people and i think that's why these homophobia is so difficult to remove is because people aren't i don't think people are invested in hating the homos and just for fun sadistically hurting <laughs> gay people that's not not for fun no not what people are doing i think people are trapped into it by their own by their own autobiography for example here's a here's one believing all everything the leader says see that is a good Rug that people I can't are standing wait on.
0: To talk about that when we get into the doctrine and covenants. That's in the yeah. first section.
1: Probably these people have made mistakes in their life that they did because a church leader told them to, and they're applying that same logic to LGBT folks and saying, "Well, I did it, and if I had to, if I had to admit that they were wrong about queer people, then I would have to admit that they were wrong about some of the stuff they told me, mm-hmm. and I, they can't face that." Right. Like, maybe they married the wrong person at 20 years old because a leader told them to. And if they had to admit that leaders aren't always right, then they would have to admit that something really bad happened to their life, mm-hmm. or theoretically. Let's look at James chapter 2 because we had someone with a trial, someone who was starving and cold and didn't have enough clothing. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to oh, well, we all have trials. No, you don't go up to the person who's starving or without enough clothing and say, whoops, well, we all have trials. (laughs) What you do is you feed them and you give them clothing. You actually fix the problem that is creating the injustice. And that's that's really what love for neighbor is. And that's why faith without works is dead. The first commandment without the second commandment is dead, right? If you love God without loving your neighbor, that is worthless. And I really want to stop right now because there's like 10,000 other scriptures I could <laughs> name. And I'm even naming ones that I didn't even have in my notes. Mm-hmm. But but let's stop right there because I think I've made my point enough.
0: Good night. All right, let's go ahead and move on. Before we do, just want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So before we get into uh, the Come Follow Me, we wanted to talk a little bit about Jesus because it's gonna be Christmas next week, or at least in the week following before uh, this lesson hits. And uh, we're not gonna be on. Like We are going to take the week of Christmas off. So we wanted to talk a little bit about some Jesus stuff today, namely uh, the circumstances
1: under which Jesus was born. What do you wanna say about that, Derek? Well, a couple of things. One is that Jesus was born into a world for other people. I mean, he lived a life for others. And I think that should inspire us at this season of the year to do what we can for others. And this ties in, obviously, with the um, love for neighbor that we talked about earlier. But I, I think the other thing is we've gotten so used to Christmas. Now Christmas takes up half the year. Like, we don't even think about how surprising it is that the maker of our world can fit inside a womb. Like, there's just some amazing... Paradox is here that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Like, that has got to just stop us in our tracks every time we think about it. I think we just have gotten so used to it that it has diminished in its effect. And let's talk about one of these implications. God loves to surprise us, and I think a lot of us are no longer surprised by Christmas. And we should figure out how to tap into that. And this gets into the ending of the Book of Mormon, which I'll talk about later, actually contains a surprise. And I think this ties into what we're gonna do in the DNC next year as well. There's many times where God breaks into the world with a surprise, which is exactly what the incarnation is about. Mm-hmm. People will be surprised when when queer people are fully equal in the church. God will break in with a surprise. Although for people who are prepared, line upon line, it won't be that much of it. It's not gonna be surprised surprise to me or you, right? <laughs> but uh. God loves to surprise us. And when we love a tradition, we're willing to be surprised by it. But, but let me go back to the birth of Jesus. And here's one of the surprises. Jesus was born of a virgin. That was a surprise to Joseph. <laughs> oh, certainly. Certainly. <laughs> like, and I love that when you look at the implications of Jesus being born of a virgin, very clearly attested to in Matthew and Luke, you notice something interesting. Let me contrast that with the with the non-binding proclamation on the family. Here's what the proclamation says. We further declare that God has commanded that the sacred powers of procreation are to be employed, watch this, only between man and woman lawfully wedded as husband and wife. Jesus was not born of the union of a husband and wife. He was born of a virgin who was overshadowed by the Holy Ghost. Jesus was not born into a proclamation family when Jesus decided to come into this world and get a foothold of his kingdom in this world and become born behind enemy lines, he chose to be born of a poor, unmarried. Teenage mother. Teenage woman of color. (laughs) Yeah. Right? That's the surprise. He was not born in Caesar's palace, not born a king in, in the worldly way, visited by shepherds he was born outside of the city he died outside of the city as as someone executed by the state we should never forget that Mm -hmm. and that's god for us that's where we find god where jesus is that's where god is jesus was conceived by the holy ghost what we learn from that is the holy ghost creates families outside the tent pole of the family proclamation let me say that again jesus was conceived by the holy ghost What we learn is that the Holy Ghost creates families outside the tent pole of the family proclamation. What do you think about that? You know what I'm referring to. Oh, absolutely. I think we are called to be like the shepherds. They were on the margins of society, both economically and geographically. They were out in the fields. The angels appeared to them first, a complete reversal. Herod wanted to know where the King of the Jews was born, but the angels didn't go to him. They went to the shepherds and also the magi from the east. They were outsiders as well. They were Gentiles. They were not part of the fabric of of Judea or Galilee. Rich and they people came. bringing
0: him money, man. <laughs> it's freaking dope. Yeah, that's a great exercise of privilege. You know? And they
1: they laid it down to worship the the young child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where we're called to be is to worship the Christ child to see God in flesh in the manger, to see a God who loves us so much that he's willing to surprise us over and over. There's just something powerful there. I really think Christmas is and should be a holiday of the marginalized. Absolutely. Where are we on time? (laughs) Uh, 35 minutes. Oh, that's good, because I think I can say what I need to say in about 10 minutes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's
1: funny.
0: That is the funniest thing you've said today, Derek. I thought I said no jokes, brother. Derek's like, I'm going to say everything I need to say in 10 That
1: wasn't minutes. a joke. I, I really think I can.
0: I don't believe you. So let's see what happens. No, if he finishes under 10 minutes, it's just because tomorrow cut it. Just want to let everybody know that right now.
1: No, we should just cut out this whole section right here where we talk about
0: talking. No, leave it in, tomorrow. Leave it in. <laughs> Okay, so before we go ahead and uh, move on to the Come, Follow Me, just want to let you guys know as well about the Gospel Tangents podcast. Another member of the Dialogue Podcast Network explores Mormon history, science, and theology from the best experts in the field. They talk to witnesses of history, BYU professors, apostles, and hopefully prophets and presidents from many different restoration branches and non-believers to cover a 360-degree view of Mormonism. Listen to them and check them out at Gospeltangents.com or wherever you listen to your podcast. That's Gospeltangents.com or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever else you guys listen to your podcast. So we're going to be in Moroni Chapter 10. This is the last Come Follow Me lesson of the year. And there are three themes I wanted to talk about Uh, before, well, just make sure that we hit on. Before I name those, Derek, was there any kind of context you wanted to give to these verses?
1: Yes. So three things real quick. First of all, Moroni, when you look at the last three books of the Book of Mormon, takes three separate opportunities to say goodbye, possibly separated by decades, where he's had time to reflect on these things. So we've got a couple of encores here. And so these are the three goodbyes. The first is in Mormon chapters eight and nine. The second is in Ether 12. And then the third one we get here in Moroni 10. Second of all, looking at the literary structure of chapter 10, we've got two sections. The first one, verses one through 23, he's explicitly speaking to the Lamanites. And then in the second half, verses 24 through 34, he is speaking to, quote, all the ends of the earth. And then the third thing I want to note is that drawing upon Grant Hardy's work, we see that Moroni positions himself as the heir of the entire Nephite literary tradition. And in this last section, Moroni weaves together, sutures together very skillfully quotations from the farewell speeches of a variety of previous Nephite writers. He snowballs all of them into this final concluding cascade of embedded quotations. He doesn't say their quotations, but he works that material in. And for more detail on this, see Grant Hardy's book <laughs> Understanding the Book of Mormon. Cool man. So
0: I wanted to point out three themes that occur throughout Moroni chapter 10, and they're all chock-full of just great things we could spend a long time talking about. I was a little worried about, you know, taking up a whole episode with just A single chapter but there's actually a lot here that is uh that is rich in content rich in doctrine and i wanted to make sure at least these three got hammered on so one was uh, a testimony of the record in the first like five or six verses of the chapter the next part was the conversation on spiritual gifts And then finally by the time we get to the end of the chapter the theme is coming unto christ and being perfected in him so first i wanted to talk a little bit about moroni's promise and i wanted to start by talking about my own experience with moroni's promise growing up i heard many people bear testimony of the book of mormon and share some pretty incredible experiences that blessed them with their testimonies I didn't have an experience like that. And because I didn't have an experience like that, I uh, spent a lot of time wondering if I actually had a testimony. My testimony came with a lot less fanfare and over the course of what seemed to be a lot more time than these other people's testimonies uh, came with. In fact, I had a testimony of the Book of Mormon before I knew I had a testimony. And every now and again, I'll, I'll still do this now. I'll read the Book of Mormon, And uh, I will just get random affirmations of truth, especially as it testified of Christ and how to treat other people this year, particularly as we've read the Book of Mormon, you know, through our respective lenses as a black and queer member of the church, I was able to see just how much of this work really had Christ in it because of how much it spoke to us. I've had multiple affirmations of the veracity of the Book of Mormon simply because of how I've been reading it this year. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for that. Um, I'll, I'll, but that's how my reading of the Book of Mormon has been pretty much since I realized I had a testimony, just these random affirmations from the spirit of the truthfulness of the words I was reading. Uh, Moroni chapter seven was instrumental in that as well. We talked about how the spirit teaches us or how the spirit speaks to us. And i learned that as i was feeling like i wanted to do good or love others and love christ i was feeling the spirit of christ so like noticing those feelings as i read the book of mormon too or noticing those feelings as i listened to the brethren speak helped me to recognize the spirit the book of mormon was instrumental in helping me understand the spirit and that feeling is why I resist patriarchal, homophobic, and racist structures and practices and policies by the church. Those feelings that I feel are the opposite of what I feel when I read the Book of Mormon. Like when I listened to Elder Whiting try to talk to us about the first Mm, and second great commandment, I was like, this is not, the feeling I got when I applied Moroni's yeah, there's promise. There's no spirit there. This is not the feeling that Moroni 7, verse 13 through 16 describes. This is not inspiring me and enticing me to do good, to love others, and to love and serve Christ. That is not this feeling. They don't invite me to do good. They don't persuade me to love Christ or serve Him. And, you know, something that I've learned about those feelings that I hold in opposition to what I get from trying to apply or experience Moroni's promise, I think I know what heresy feels like, Derek. Mm. Like heresy is basically the opposite of things that inspire me to love God and to serve Christ and to do good to others. Any doctrine or policy that does not center Christ or does not have the least of these in mind is a heresy. That is what Moroni's promise has taught me. That is what Moroni 7 has taught me. Heresy is the opposite of, of anything that invites us to be compassionate to others, that invites us to love and serve Christ. So yeah, Moroni's promise. I I just wanted to ask you, Derek, if you had any kind of uh, experiences with Moroni, like just as a convert.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah. So there's a couple of different conversion narratives we have in the Bible. One is the road to Emmaus, where gradually these two disciples are walking and talking with Jesus and then it gradually dawns on them whatever he was teaching them, how all the prophecies and the scriptures point to Jesus. And so there's that sort of gradual awareness. And then there's of course the, um, the call of, of Paul on the road to Damascus. (laughs) Like boom, here I am. Yeah. And, um, I have a theory about what exactly happened. So, he was probably plodding along on his horse, which the Bible never mentions the horse. So Acts narrates this scene three times and there's no horse in them. But he was plodding along his horse and he fell off the horse in such a way that he smashed his balls on something. And that explains the blinding lights. (laughs) And it also explains why he was single the rest of his life. And like wow. he said, I wish all men were like I was and not wow. married. Um, wow. Maybe tomorrow's really coming gonna... <laughs> for Paul right now. I don't know how much I appreciate this disrespect of Paul right now, no. dude. I hope tomorrow cuts that out because I did not plan to say that. Keep it in tomorrow. <laughs> no, nope, let everybody know. Let everybody know. The people will think I'm weird.
0: They already know that, and they embrace that, Derek. You okay, act whatever. like being weird is a revelation <laughs> <laughs> to
1: anybody who listens to the show about you, bro. This is endearing. Okay, so that's not, that's from a scholarly perspective, that's not what happened. My point is, there was this big surprise, right? Mm-hmm. So I did not have a big surprise like Paul. I, over the course of several months, was learning with the missionaries, attending church, and reading a lot. And I was going to Andover Newton Theological School at the time, and people would ask me, like, Well, what are you reading? What are you learning? And I would report to them, Well, here's what the Mormons, that's what we were back then, um, here's what the Mormons were telling me, and here's what they did, and here's what they believe. And I noticed over the course of those months, my pronouns changed with reference to members of the church because At first, I would tell people, "Oh, this is what happened when they crossed the plains." And then one day, I found myself saying, "This is what happened when we crossed the plains." And Mm -hmm. I included myself in that pronoun. Mm -hmm. I didn't even—I hadn't even decided to join the church that yet, yet. But it just gradually dawned on me, and then the pieces. It's kind of like I had all the the puzzle pieces before. I was very familiar with the the doctrine, the scripture, and the history of the church. But I had it's like all the puzzle pieces were on the you know those thousand jigsaw. It looks like a mess, and I had a new perspective and a new flash of insight that allowed me to put the pieces in place, and it all made sense. And I realized that the Book of Mormon was true. I realized that this church is true. I realized that the restoration is another inbreaking of God's kingdom in the world that all these things that I loved in the Bible were real, and they came back, and it just, like a bucket of knowledge got dumped on my head over that uh, over that summer, and I'm like, wow, this is the place for me, and I have had- This is the place, just like yeah, that. Yeah, huh? this is the place for me, and I've had no doubts about my place here. This is my church just as much as anyone else. I, I definitely fell in love with the Book of Mormon and the Restored Gospel, and I really see, just as we've gone, we've now gone through this a year together. Can you believe that? We've a year been, and a half, bro. I mean, a year in the Book of Mormon. Oh, a year yeah. in the Book of Mormon, yes. And every week we can see such relevant insights that we realize that the Book of Mormon is, is exactly what we need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's it's some wild. challenges in reading the Book of Mormon and some texts that we have to do some work on, and yeah. there are texts of terror in the Book of Mormon. But on the whole, we've got... A good wrestle here and it's exactly what the world needs so that's Mm -hmm. my Moroni's promise it wasn't like oh I prayed and then five minutes later got an answer so that's what yeah I don't know if that made sense to you no it was great like I
0: just realized I never asked uh I mean I know pieces of your conversion story but I never really asked you about your experience with coming to know that the Book of Mormon was Mm -hmm. true yeah you alluded to it briefly when you were ordained to the Melchizedek Priesthood that this is like one of my first times like really getting to know Derek. Derek's ordination to the Melchizedek Priesthood was a production and I was so here oh, for wow. it man. Yeah. I would never seen anything like that. I but, think um,
1: I spoke for like 10 minutes. You
0: spoke, like that's was another <laughs> thing, I was like, <laughs> I remember just being there, and this is when I just still barely knew Derek, but I remember being like, oh, this is interesting. There's like 20 or 30 people here just to see Derek get ordained. This guy's pretty popular, and these people are from like all different kinds of faiths as well, and yeah. now Derek is going to get up and say some words? And I you, never, were, you saw- And you weren't
1: there at my baptism either. I was not at your baptism. Yes, like, I wish this you could have been there. Him. Like, we didn't know each other at that time. Right.
0: Um, but I was like, okay. First of all, this could not have been any more of a Derek affair. <laughs> like as soon as I got to know Derek, I was like, oh, this is why Derek spoke at his wow. ordination, at his <laughs> ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood. That is just a, it like, that's what Derek would require. That's what Derek would need. That made total sense.
1: Well, part of it is I wanted to explain to people what it meant to me and what it meant to my community, and that's what I did.
0: Yeah. And considering how many people were present at this moment that were not of our faith, it wasn't an appropriate thing to do, in my opinion. So uh, I just realized that I wanted to know more of Derek's uh, story with regards to his testimony of the Book of Mormon. So thank you for sharing that, Derek. I do appreciate (laughs) it. Now I know a little bit more about you. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time focusing on some of these conditions for a fulfillment of Moroni's promise. You'll notice that in verse uh, 4, we are or 3 and 4, we're told to remember how merciful the lord god has been to us and to ponder that fact in our hearts not just the book of mormon or the things that we've learned from it but ponder how merciful the lord has been in our hearts and then we get to some more conditions in verse four ask god in the name of christ if these things are not true and if you shall ask with a sincere heart With real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, first of all, as I'm reading this just now, I just realized that I've always sectioned off these last three conditions as separate things. But now I'm realizing Mm. they are very much related, very much interconnected. It's very difficult to have a sincere heart, real intent, and faith in Christ independent of each other. And I've just now read this and realized, oh, this is actually one in the same condition, I think. Like, this is another way we got to realize or read into real intent. But I did want to focus on real intent real quick, because one of my favorite things to do after talking to investigators when I was on my mission or anybody, uh, as I talked to them about the Book of Mormon or the restored gospel, I I always ask them after our conversation that if they knew the Book of Mormon was true, what were they going to do about that? I loved asking that question and i saw two things with that question i wanted to see how much of the conversation they understood and uh, fill in the gaps where i saw them and secondly i wanted to make sure that they knew that the truthfulness of the book of mormon had consequences and that they needed to be ready to embrace those consequences if they wanted to receive an answer This was one of my earliest and holiest lessons with boundaries. Uh, I talk a lot about boundaries on this show. This is not going to be any different. But God is not likely to uh, give us answers to prayers if we're not going to act appropriately on those answers. This is why I guard my energy in conversations about racism or homophobia or patriarchy. If I know somebody is acting in bad faith and they don't actually want to learn from me, Then I don't engage them. Jesus understood this. You know, he understood this when he did no miracles in his own city because people didn't respect or trust him. He understood this when he refused to engage the men who brought the woman taken in adultery, like you said, on their terms. He understood this when he taught us not to cast pearls before swine. Jesus rarely, like, he understood this when he went before Herod and refused to engage him, when Mm -hmm. Herod refers to engage Mm -hmm. him in, uh, in good faith. Like Jesus will rarely, if ever, give us divine instruction that he knows we won't follow. So we're not just learning about Moroni's promise here in these conditions. We're learning about prayer in general. When we ask for things in prayer, we should probably imagine the Lord asking us, okay, you've asked for this thing. Now, what are you going to do with that thing I give you? what are you going to do if I tell you the answer to your question? One of my favorite little maxims is don't ask questions you don't want answers to. You know? Yeah. Because the Lord acts in this way with us. He is not going to give us answers or he's very rarely going to give us answers to prayers that we are not willing to do anything with. So like are you going to accept this if the answer is no or what are you going to give this what do you want to do if i give you this thing should be questions we regularly ask ourselves before we go to god in prayer the ability to receive answers to our prayers i believe is directly correlated with our willingness to act appropriately on the answers we've received and something that i pride myself on is the ability to receive answers to questions that i don't want to hear one of my most recent and most impactful experiences with this was you know when i decided not to pay my tithing for about two years i remember when i was seeking more of a measure of the spirit of the lord in my life i was running through all the things in my life i could improve upon and then when i landed on tithing the spirit said to me this is what you need to focus on even though you don't want to do it even though you are really struggling with this i need you to pay your tithing And I was like, you know what? I don't completely understand this, but I know that this prompting was from God. So you know what? I'll pay my tithing and you come through for me, Jesus. You come through for me. Even though I don't understand this and don't want to do it, I'm going to do it. So I feel like this is something that I have a strong testimony of and something that I would definitely encourage other people to develop a testimony of is the ability to follow through on promptings or follow through on answers to prayers, even if they're
1: not what you want to hear. You know, the principle that you just said about real intent I think is a big factor in why we haven't gotten a solid revelation on LGBTQ people yet. (laughs) Because the people in Salt Lake City don't have real intent. I really don't think that, that I think if God showed up to them, you know, like at the first vision, you've got, you saw Jesus and, and the Father come to them and say, you know what, you got to be nice to to these people. They're my people. Mm-hmm. They would they wouldn't know what to do. I li- honestly don't think that they are. You, you can hear this in wh- the way they talk about same sex marriage, the way they talk about gay people. They yeah. aren't even thinking that it's a possibility that this could change. Mm-hmm. They they're not willing to to open the doors to same gender marriage or to trans folks living them as the gender they know themselves. They're not open to that. I mean, it's right. impossible at this point. Fortunately, God does impossible things, but if they're trying to pray and get an answer, I don't even think they're they're they've considered that they could be wrong enough to even ask God to mm-hmm. double check. Mhm. It's it's really tough. But and that gets back to this concept of real intent and people's intentions because we see this a lot in any type of microaggressions to any minority. The person will say, "Well, I I'm a good person, and I'm, I'm not racist, and I am I had good intentions, even though I hurt you. My intentions were good, and I, whatever. And that, that bugs us, right? Mm-hmm. But what I want to say is, that's the whole point of real intent. Real intent is having a knowledgeable connection between the intent and the action. And without that, you don't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I want to say intention, like all these good intentions. Intentions are like Google Maps. Like, Google Maps can chart where you are and where you're going, and it can make this little line the whole way. But if you don't have a car, if you don't have a a bike or a a train or whatever, you don't even get anywhere. Like, the intent maps that out. But unless you have a vehicle or a means of, of progressing in action that gets you to that intent it doesn't matter that you have the the Google Maps, right? Google Maps, like if I'm in the middle of nowhere and I don't have any, like Google Maps will not help me get anywhere. Intentions do not actually do anything. Yeah. And I wanna talk a little bit about the power behind Moroni's promise because if you look at it seriously and take seriously the restoration, what it means is this is one of our most empowering scriptures ever because it centers responsibility on the individual Mm -hmm. that the individual is responsible and accountable before god we can't outsource anything to the brethren or someone else Mm -hmm. we are the ones that not only have the right but the responsibility of getting revelation directly from god we should never have anyone in the church say well, just take my word for it. That's not what Moroni says. He doesn't right. say, well, just take right. my word for it. He says, you you can do everything I just did. Mm-hmm. You can mm-hmm. get as firm a confidence as I currently have. And further, it
0: needs to be said that we're not obligated to really, we're not obligated to follow things that we don't receive a spiritual witness of. Right. And I say that carefully because I don't want people to think that I'm advocating for just doing whatever they want to do. Like, personally, I've been prompted to do things that I didn't want to do, and other times I've had to live certain commandments before my testimony of that commandment was sure. I don't want people to miss the nuance present here just because I'm imperfect in communicating it. Hubie Brown, for example once said that all members should respect, we should support, we should heed the teachings of the authorities of the church, but no one should accept any statements and base their testimonies upon it, no matter who makes it, until we have under mature examination found it to be true and worthwhile. Then our logical deductions may be confirmed by the spirit of revelation because real conversion has to come from within. Scripture backs this up. In D&C 68.4, as a caveat to those scriptures that say whatever the prophet speaks as the prophet is doctrine, D&C 68.4 tells us that we can know if leaders speak the will of God when we're moved upon by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit is the only thing that can let us know for sure that something is from God and is therefore the only thing we're obligated to when it comes to the practice of our faith and what commandments we obey.
1: Yes, we absolutely have the right to test what we hear and it's not just an issue of of the consent of the church or you know a justice issue it's also part of our eternal growth like if we outsource all of our moral development to someone else we don't don't actually we, we will not develop we can't just have people spoon feed we need to stand on our own or else we will never be able to stand before god now here's something interesting about this right to test things this is somewhat implied in this diversity of gifts that we have in Moroni chapter 10. And Moroni chapter 10 is drawing upon what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 about, you know, there's many gifts but, but one spirit. And that's why we don't all have to be the same in the church. We don't all have the same covenant path. We don't all have the same gifts. We all don't have the same opportunities or experiences. Uh, there's just a lot of different things that happen. And we're gonna be coming from different positionalities. And I love that one of the spiritual gifts that Paul names, it's not here in Moroni 10, but Paul names the discernment of spirits. He says it's actually one of the Spirit's gifts in order for you to tell what's right and what's wrong. Mm -hmm. When you hear hear something, you'll be able to fact check. You'll be able to spiritually check it. And I just love that because we on the margins, that's one of our spiritual gifts. We hear stuff and we know it's wrong. That is amazing. And I wanna talk a little bit about why this idea of hope, because it's interesting that when it's the most hopeless for Moroni is when he has the most hope, because his hope is now outside of himself in, in the future. And I think it's because he goes back and folds in all of those farewell pieces of material from the previous writers. It gives him a chance to look forward instead of looking Backward, which is awful, or even in his own present, which is awful. He looks Mm -hmm. forward with hope to the restoration, the inclusion of the Lamanites, the uh, restoration of of all these things, the restoration of the church that he loves um, so fondly in chapters one through six of Moroni. And look at what also he has. He has the book of Ether that really looks backwards, but the book of Moroni looks forward, and that's why he has the hope. He talks about faith, hope, and love right after the spiritual gifts, mm-hmm. just like Paul does um, in First Corinthians 13. And this reminds me of a quote by an indigenous author, Vine Deloria, and here's what he says. Religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who've already been there. And I want to say this again. Religion is for people who are afraid of going to hell. Spirituality is for those who have already been there. And I think that's where Moroni, he's already been to hell. I mean, figuratively, right? Mm-hmm. This is this is all metaphorical. And I think that prompts Moroni to be open to a surprise ending. And the surprise ending of the Book of Mormon isn't the genocide, because we knew that was coming. The surprise ending is that Moroni is able to reclaim hope, to reclaim joy, and almost an unshakable joy in his own Um, his own standing, his own dignity, his own access to God, and then that faith leads to his hope and joy in what the future will unfold for people.
0: Mm. I'd like to return briefly to this conversation on spiritual gifts because uh, one of the questions that came to my mind is why Moroni wanted to talk about these and what these are for exactly. Like I asked this question, I think, the same week that we started reading Moroni, Because the first six chapters is a lot of uh, administrative things. And I was like, why does Moroni want to talk about administrative things near the end of his life? He knows he could die any day. But the fact that he's focusing so much on this administrative stuff has me asking some questions. Why does he want to talk about this? And similarly, I wanted to know why does Morana want to talk about spiritual gifts now? And a clue is given in verse 8 when he talks about, or when he exhorts people to not deny the gifts of God for there are many, he exhorts us, there's this urgency in there. And in considering the other accounts in scripture, where there's talk of spiritual gifts, they all begin similarly to what's written here in verse eight in Corinthians 12, there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God, which worketh in them all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal, And then we see something similar in D&C 46. Again, to some it is given by the Holy Ghost to know the differences in administration, as it will be pleasing unto the same Lord, according as the Lord will, suiting his mercies according to the conditions of the children of men. Diversities of operations is mentioned in that next verse. But I just wanted to point out that in those, uh, in that New Testament and in that uh, D&C verse, administration is, Is actually named which leads Mm -hmm. me to believe that moroni wants to focus on some more administration stuff here there's this theme that's highlighted briefly in the dnc verses about the importance of all these gifts that there's a diversity of gifts but they're all under the same god and i wanted to talk about that briefly in this conversation on spiritual gifts i feel pretty comfortable in saying that the gifts of the spirit are foundational to the functionality of the entire church Paul's narrative, I've already alluded to this before, but it makes a convincing case for this when he talked about spiritual gifts to the Corinthians. There was a lot of obstacles to the church's growth. There was all this spiritual elitism, like I said, of people who wanted to identify themselves with certain gifts or certain teachers of God or certain gods, period. Like Everybody was trying to suppose themselves better than other people because they had these different spiritual gifts from different people or from different sources. But Paul... When he got to, by the time we got to Corinthians 12, he really wanted to clarify both uh, the source and the purpose of spiritual gifts, so that the so that the church could be united, and in that unity they could be functional, they could be vibrant, displaying various gifts from the same spirit. So it's probably not a coincidence that the very next, that in that same chapter, Paul's discourse on the body of Christ also comes. I think Moroni is giving us a rundown on spiritual gifts for the same reason that Paul wanted Mm -hmm, to talk to the Corinthians mm -hmm. about spiritual gifts. He wanted to give us another tool to be successful in the church. He wanted to give us another tool for good administration and proper maintenance and growth of the church. And it's also worth mentioning that, you know, spiritual gifts are how we're supposed to identify the church, how we're supposed to identify followers. And when the church first started, these spiritual gifts were also in abundance. And we had sections of the DNC coming out pretty much every other weekend. I would love for us to go back to those days where we don't deny the gifts of the spirit. And that's not to say that we don't still experience them to some extent, but I think we could be experiencing these gifts of the spirit in a more vibrant, in a more full way that makes us more identifiable as the Lord's restored church.
1: We're always called to be a dying and rising church. I think people think we're all set. (laughs) You and I don't have the luxury of imagining that we're all set. Another question that kept coming to my mind is what it
0: means to seek the best gifts or covet the gifts of the spirit, because I've heard various things on this Derek about the conditions under which spiritual gifts are given and what our role is in seeking those. I just wanted to know if you had any thoughts about that or any
1: insight you could offer. I think so. I think what I would go back to is something that I quoted from Martin Luther a while back that these are the three things that make a theologian. Prayer, meditation, or study, and testing or trial, however you translate them. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio, faciunt, theologum. That prayer, study, and trial make a theologian. And I think that's really what what leads to spiritual gifts. Like if you pray and request, like Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. If you ask for some more influence in the spirit of the Spirit in your life, you'll get it. The second thing is study. Studying the, you know, I'm never gonna tire of of people, telling people to study the scriptures, right? But you have to do it responsibly and thoughtfully or else you could hurt yourself, I just wanna say that. But studying the scriptures, you really get to see the heroes of our faith, the, where, where God works on the margins, where God surprises us. You get to see all those things and that can inspire you to understand the spirit in your life. And then the third thing is trial. When you're up against the wall, that's when you really turn to God. That's when you really see your dependence and this feeling of utter dependence on God. And that's, I think, where you have the context for the spirit to to break into your life because you can't do it yourself. I think that would be my answer.
0: Okay, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Um, the last thing i wanted to talk about briefly was this uh was what we encounter at the end of the chapter Mm -hmm. in coming unto christ and being perfected in him i think that phrase is in 32. Come unto Christ and be perfected in him, and deny yourselves of all ungodliness. And ye, and if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness, and love God with all your might, mind and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God ye are perfect in Christ, ye can in no wise deny the power of God. I had a little bit of trouble following these clauses until I focused on them one at a time. I uh, ask myself first the question of what it is to be perfected in Christ and deny ourselves of all ungodliness. I don't feel like I need to spend a lot of time talking about what perfection isn't. We in the church, we tend to understand these days that perfection isn't never making a mistake. Most of us know, and like we know this as members of the church, but I will say we don't always believe it. Um, There's still a lot of us who feel a great deal of anxiety or depression or discouragement or just otherwise exhaustion because of our efforts to become a certain idea of perfect. I mean, there's nobody that knows that right now, I think, better than LGBTQ saints who are trying to remain in the church. Um, it's not healthy, you know what I'm saying? And in some circumstances, I don't think it properly honors the atonement given for the very purpose of filling in the gaps left by our own imperfections, our own questions, our own blemishes. I think that's all I need to say about that generally speaking. But a thought did come to me as I pondered this question that a big part of being perfected in Christ for me is learning to see people as God sees them. I don't know why that was a thought um that came to well i know why it came to me but it just seemed Mm -hmm. a little bit it seemed a little bit irrelevant um until i dug into it a little bit more i remembered a teaching from elder renland a few years ago about how we can only be filled with the pure love of christ when we see through the eyes of christ and i feel like a big part of our work right now derek is trying to get people to this point trying to help people see others as christ sees them because when that happens you know racism goes away homophobia goes away mm-hmm. and patriarchy goes away hopefully too but just this idea of seeing people as christ sees them i feel like is just going i mean heck elder nelson quoted this when he talked about racism yeah. elder oaks i think said something similar when he talked about racism This is a very easy thing to say in theory, but I'm hopefully able to help people uh, understand this a little bit better by giving more of a personal example. Because for me, this is not something that's always easy to do, particularly when I'm angry. I'm like, I'm in a perpetual state of rage. Like James Baldwin says, to be black and conscious in America is to be in a perpetual state of rage. And this rage isn't always unhealthy. At least in the sense of, uh, you know, it it doesn't make me succumb to hatred. That is what I'm trying to say. Like, my anger is for the most part, my anger for the most part is indignant. Very rarely does my anger push me into realms of hatred. And I think that's where our activism can get away from us, is when we focus less on communion and more on the hatred to the point where we get consumed by our hatred. What made me think of this was an experience I had just a few weeks ago when a seminary class experienced a racist incident. And then Dr. LaShawn and myself were called to talk about the incident with the victims of this incident, as well as the young women's leaders and uh, the seminary teachers. Oh, I didn't hear about this. Oh, my bad. So we're about to all hear something new today. But uh, I was on this Zoom call with all these leaders and with Dr. LaShawn. And then I made a white woman cry. Let me tell you what I did. I kind of grew impatient with her for empathizing with the perpetrator of this racism more or as much as empathizing with the victims of the racism. I got impatient. And I feel like I had a right to be impatient. However, I let my impatience show. And uh, then I made this woman cry. Now, I don't really feel bit bad about making the woman cry. But I did feel bad. About the way i addressed the issue because in my impatience i cut off the head of a racist hydra and three more things grew in its place Uh oh i created more work for dr lashon i had to wait for this woman's tears to pass and then i ended up being in this meeting longer than i had to because of my own impatience Mm. when it comes to being strategic i believe this is what you're talking about i believe i have a right to be impatient but I do think my impatience can get me into some trouble when it comes to this effort that I'm exercising. When I refuse in that moment to be part of this woman's process, when I refuse to be present with her as she figured out these particular yeah. problems. So I just wanted this to be, you know, this personal example of me not fully seeing people the way that God sees them and not fully sitting with them mm-hmm. in the way that God would see them. Which brought me to the logical antecedent or the logical following clause that occurs in this verse which is deny yourselves of all ungodliness because pride might be the greatest ungodliness i hold on to derek the perfectionism the refusal to accept help and the fact that many of my life's greatest accomplishments have come have been achieved through spite just lets me Uh-oh. know that you know pride is still a very active part of my life and I can point to specific examples in the last month of the kind of dysfunction that this has brought but more than that I can see how my pride denies God's grace which again I did not see coming next in this verse but I realized that because of my pride I'm not letting God fill in the gaps i am not remembering the words in this next verse that if you deny yourselves of this ungodliness and love god with all your might mind and strength then is his grace sufficient for you and then by his grace you can be perfect in christ i did not realize until i studied this more intently of how much my pride was getting in the way of the atonement working in my life of how much my pride was getting in the way of Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fishes into a bounteous meal that could feed 5,000. Jesus, steal that little boy's lunch and make me a bounteous (laughs) feast, you know? Like, I wasn't letting him do that. Grace is part of the atonement that fills in our gaps as imperfect children that we may be perfect, and our ungodliness can be those things, anything that prevents us from accepting God's grace in my case that's my pride but it could be something different for you guys and I say it can be because I'm not gonna pretend to have a full understanding of how this dynamic works but for me my ungodliness is pride and that is my barrier to grace and I just hope everybody can find whatever their ungodliness is that prevents them from feeling the grace in the fullness of the atonement in ways that can make them perfect
1: Wow yeah and I think that that's a great way of summarizing the hope that Moroni surprisingly finds as the surprise ending here. You know, speaking of racism, racism is a big factor in why the Nephites and Lamanites ended up acting so cruelly towards one another. Yep. And that's where the Book of Mormon leaves us. And Moroni still is able to find hope. And being perfected in Christ is a very hopeful thing to look forward to here's one thing that I noticed about the last sentence of the book of Mormon here. I think it has some, it's just some significant, poetic and literary beauty. Verse 34. And now I bid unto all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite. And I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge, of both quick and the dead. And I think here he ends acknowledging his rest, but acknowledging, you know, he's going to die, but then acknowledging the triumphant coming forth not just of his own body and soul at the in the resurrection, but also of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I think that's what keeps him going. For many, many centuries, the Book of Mormon, the plates were trapped in the Camora closet not allowed to be themselves, not to be out in the world. And then when they literally came out of the Kimura closet, we had more light and more beauty and more truth in the world. And so whenever we come out, we infuse this world with something special. And that's where I think Moroni leaves us, that no matter what it looks like here, there is something to hold on to, something that redirects us to Christ.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. This is what Mormon was talking to him about in uh, chapter nine. Despite how things look, there is a purpose in this work that we are still doing coming out of the Kamora closet. I'm going to find a reason to put that on a t-shirt eventually, but I really love that. But uh, I just love how you, uh, hearken back to that idea that in spite of the seeming hopelessness of the situation mm-hmm. that when I found himself in, he saw a tremendous amount of meaning in, in what he was writing, in, what he, in the work he was doing. And that's powerful. That is extremely powerful. That is a great reminder for those of us on the margins who are doing the work of making sure the humanity of us and others like us are recognized. And, it's, uh, and it does a tremendous service to the rest of us who are just any kind of generally discouraged by the world that we see ourselves in. We can find meaning in our perfection. We can find meaning in our work as we come unto Christ and be perfected in him. It's a great message. I love that so much.
1: It is a great message.
0: Let's go ahead and uh, wrap up real quick with some housekeeping items. Derek, where can people find us? You can
1: find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.
0: Yep. And in terms of events, uh, we don't have anything coming up ourselves. Just a reminder, uh, you're not going to hear from us next week, but you will hear from us the week after, as it is the week that we will be discussing the first lesson of the New Year's Come Follow Me and the Doctrine and Covenants, which I believe is Doctrine and Covenants section one. Also, we do have a date on the fourth annual Black LDS Legacy Conference. It will be February, the weekend of February 20th, and I guess the 20th is the day of all the events. I don't know who's on the lineup yet. Is there, do you have anything coming up, Derek?
1: No, I don't have anything coming up.
0: All right, sweet. And with that, brothers and sisters and siblings in Christ, we will see you guys in two weeks' time. Prepare to discuss the new curriculum for the new Come Follow Me next year.
1: Bye, everyone, and Merry Christmas.